Blood Brothers Podcast, a Five Pillars Production. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, my dear brothers, sisters, friends, and the foes out there, and welcome to another episode of the Blood Brothers Podcast with your host, Dili Hussein. Before I introduce today's guest, I want to remind all the avid podcast listeners that you can find this show on all the major platforms. And if you're tuning in via YouTube, don't just watch the podcast. Do remember to like and share and of course, subscribe. Today's guest is a dear brother of mine, someone whose work and activism and contribution towards uh, the, the freedom of his people I have followed and admired from afar. He's an activist, he's a political commentator, and he's the president of the World Kashmir Freedom Movement, and that's none other than Muzammil Ayub Takur. Asalaamu Alaikum. My dear brother, I'm honoured to have you on. It's such a pleasure to finally have met you and to be in your studio and to be discussing issues that matter to both of us of course. and the wider community. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah. And I believe when you briefly came on in Ramadan for one of our live appeals, Roshan recognised... That he, he knew your father, I love mercy on him. I mean, I mean and um, your father was also involved in this justice and freedom and liberation of the Muslims of Kashmir, was he not? He was from his uh, student activist days in Kashmir. Um, the funny thing is that he didn't identify the Kashmir issue as a nationalistic issue. Um, so when he heard about issues like Palestine, or for that matter, in those days, people hadn't heard of the Rohingya mm. uh, or the Uyghurs. So he, was, he even recognized those as issues of the Muslim Ummah. So it was never a nationalistic issue for him. All issues revolved around the same theme, which was the Muslims and the oppression of the Muslims and how to alleviate those sufferings and liberate them. You know, whenever I talk about um, the occupation or oppression of uh, Muslims other than Palestinians, I always, especially to students and, and, and to the youth, I always say that, look, if I were to ask you, tell me things about Philistine, you'll tell me about the different Masajid, the different Anbiya, where, where they are believed to have buried, you tell me all the stories which Sahaba are, are buried there. And of course, we know that there is a scriptural importance of Absolutely. Asham, right? Absolutely. But we have, we know the history very well. And I believe that the one of the ways in which we can connect with our brothers and sisters who are oppressed and occupied elsewhere is to understand their history and their heritage. Because ultimately it's part of the wider jigsaw of Islamic civilization history. So talking about Kashmir, did it all start with partition 1947 or is there things to consider before that? It's so important to recognize, as you said, that you need to know where you've come from to realize where you're going. Um, 1947 partition, the issue of, of, of partition, the creation of Pakistan and India, Kashmir predates all of that. Um, 1846, we were sold by the British Raj to, uh, um, to Gulab Singh. So we're going 100 years before the partition. Sold? Sold. What, in return for what? The land. Okay. So literally the people in the land, and we were sold for, some, for, for a very minimal amount of money, which in conversion rates would be a few thousand pounds, and, and a few goats and sheep. That was the value of a Kashmiri. That was the value of his land. Um, majority of Kashmiris at that time were, were Muslim. The ruler was a Hindu. Um, but even before that, you, we, we have five to six thousand years of history, mostly of oppression and occupation, but we have that history. Um, but in the context of the current conflict, 
it it does predate night i would say I, I would argue strongly that it does predate the partition of course the partition created a massive role in this but even during 1931 we had something called the quit kashmir movement which was essentially against the dogra raj who were mm. oppressive against the kashmiris who were you know high taxes uh, not allowing education for for the common kashmiris the hindus were the minority hindus the pandits what we call them there were the masters uh, of of the kashmiri uh, common man Common Kashmiris were left to labouring work, physical labour. Uh, education was not really important because it was never given as an opportunity. So 1931 is when the issues are, I mean, if you want to predate 1947, just a little bit, 1931. So partition, obviously, it, exp I mean, it, it, was, it engulfed everybody in the region. Everybody had something to say with it. And I would go so far as to say that even on an international global scale, it must have had an, Im an impact e in terms of e economics. The British economy versus the Indian economy at that Absolutely. time, or as a Raj, what it was, was completely different to what it is, what it was post-1947. The way the Chinese would have been affected, the way that the, even uh, Central Asia would have been affected. Of course. So, of course, Kashmir would have been affected in the same way. Um, the only difference that I would say in regards to you know, Pakistan and India, the way that it was formed, Kashmir had that simple problem that we were a Muslim majority that had a Hindu ruler. And... Uh, uh, the rule, so-called rule at the time, was that the Muslim majorities would go with Pakistan and Hindu majorities would stay with India. Uh, Kashmir's issue of 1947, I mean, when we talk about the priestly states... Because that's the story of partition, that, that, right? That's exactly it. So, even though that is the story, and a lot of people will say that that's where it started, our, I don't, I don't want to say defence, but our objection started way before that. Our oppression started a hundred years, I would say maybe even 5,000 years before that. We've been under different various types of occupations and you know, some people used to say that it's in our, I mean, occupation has been running in our DNA for so long, but at the same time, if it's in this, if in this vein there is occupation, in this vein there is resistance. Absolutely. Because we've had to learn. Um, so I would argue very strongly that it predates 1947. 1947 may have catalyzed certain aspects of our resistance, uh, but it definitely was pre-1947. So, 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 so allow me to touch upon some of the key years that you did highlight. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about 1846. The British sold uh, Kashmir for that amount to, what was the Hindu ruler's name? Gulab Singh. Prior to that, it was where was Kashmir? Under under the British rule? Under the British rule. And prior okay. to that, it's been under the Afghanis, it's okay. been under the Sikh, in fact, the Sikh yes. Empire as well. So it's always been the Chaka dynasty had at one point uh, uh, control over Kashmir. Very rarely in our history have we had uh, um, freedom, so okay. to speak. Um, and the most important aspect of freedom is what is freedom? It's not the right to vote or elections or economy. It is the ability to express yourself in the way that you want. And for Muslims, it is always the ability to express yourself as a Muslim. Absolutely. To be able to go to the masjid, to mm. be able to wear the hijab, to be able to keep a beard. If this sounds very similar to the problems of the Uyghurs, mm. that's, <laughs> I mean, Absolutely. this is, this is, this is, ex I mean, it's not new. These, these stories are, this is, we predate all of this. Um, not that I have enough knowledge to talk about the Uyghurs in that context, but if we talk about it's the similar. Uyghurs, it's, it's the same. The thing. Muslims have always had this problem. We talk about the enlightenment period of the Muslim Ummah, <laughs> but what happened after that? Why did it go so dark? And why for so long? And why have so many people contributed to that darkness? And obviously, it's going to be very difficult to go into the uh, technicalities and understand and can we really solve it? But the reality is that we need to know what has happened so that we understand what could happen further. 
the best example that I can give you in this context is 70 years of Kashmiri occupation, of Muslim Kashmiri occupation, is now being seen inside mainland India. What you witness happening to Afreen Fatima, dear sister of mm. mine, what you, happen, what you witness happening to Zubair, mm. uh, um, the, the, journalist. The, the journalist, or any of the other Muslims. Today, there was another issue. We warned them. We warned the Indian Muslims for the last 70 plus years. They had their own issues, that is absolutely true. They had to prove their loyalty to they, India. They had to prove the Indianness. Absolutely. We can understand that. But at the same time, you're a Muslim at the end of the day, right? If, you, if you're not going to at least support our cause, at least don't condemn us. Mm. And I'm not talking about 70 years ago, I'm talking about just even recently. recently. You have the Maulanas, you have the Imams, the scholars inside India that tell us that we are against the Haqq. Absolutely. That we are the Baatir. Can you believe that? Outrageous. So, 1931 was another year that you highlighted. Tell me the significance of that. So, certain leaders inside Kashmir rose against the Dogra Raj. Um, they wanted liberation from the oppression that he had subjugated on the people. Taxes, land reforms, uh, general oppression and subjugation of, of the Muslims. Mm -hmm. um, that was an important year. It gave rise to what I would say a more common theme of resistance coming onto the streets, something that maybe hadn't happened often inside Kashmir. That was probably the first time uh, major protests that had occurred inside Kashmir on a mass scale. Mm -hmm. So we've been protesting for more than a century uh, for, for reforms inside Kashmir. And when I mean reforms, I don't mean political reforms, I'm talking about freedom, freedom from oppression and occupation. So that, that Dogra Raj, the, the so-called King Maharaja of Kashmir, um, started making deals and you know what happens when you have certain people in power and of power course. goes to their head and then they make compromises and when they make compromises uh, it, is, it is not just a compromise on their own beliefs and their own self and their own character they compromise on behalf of an entire and nation it, absolutely. and because of that Kashmir has been further uh, occupied further subjugated so people the, the, the Sheikh Abdullahs of their time mm. that uh, were the so-called leaders of Kashmir that went out to liberate Kashmir from oppression mm. suddenly became the oppressor himself SubhanAllah we from the subcontinent India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Kashmir we know of the horror stories of partition you know our grandmothers our grand grandparents their parents will narrate stories um, of the scramble and the havoc that took place when literally overnight it was announced that there'll be an east and west Pakistan, there'll be an in India, uh, Muslims go to east and west, mm -hmm. and the Hindus come towards India. Um, and you'll find that in the borders of Bangladesh, with Calcutta, with Assam, you'll find that with the Muhajirs, mm -hmm. as Pakistanis call them, the ones that came from India. What happened in Kashmir? If you're telling me that Kashmir as a region was demographically majority Muslim, are you saying that during partition time, those that are now in Azad uh, were the ones in India unable to make it across in time? The people of Kashmir didn't need to physically move anywhere. We are naturally, geographically linked to Pakistan. Historically, we have been uh, our natural markets have been inside Pakistan. So there is this Nara. There is this uh, um, the the Nara. How do you translate Nara into English? Uh, there's this protest. The, 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 Protest? No, you know when you make anthems, not anthems. Oh, this is so embarrassing. No, no, it's good. I like it. It's what makes a podcast original. Tell me, tell me the word. 
ہم کیا چاہتے آزاد یو نو سلوگن دیٹس دا ورڈ سلوگن مائی گاڈ سو پاکستان کے مطلب ہماری منڈی راول پنڈی My ancestors used to travel regularly to Pakistan to do trade. Yeah. Because it was a... Na- nobody went to Delhi. Nobody went to Gujarat. Nobody went to Ahmedabad. Nobody went to Kerala. Uh-huh. Or for that matter, nobody went to Assam. Yeah. Pakistan was just there. Yeah. It was always just there. The Silk Route went through Kashmir. So even for China, we have been a hub for uh, and connecting uh, uh, the West and the East. When I talk about West and East, we talk about in terms of Central, Central mm-hmm. Asia. Mm-hmm. We've been that for, for, for so many years. Uh, um, You know how you have pit stops and you have the, the service yeah. stations? That was us. That was always us. So we didn't need to physically move. So people that were in, for example, Gujarat may have had to physically move. Those, those were in Kerala or, uh, uh, or in Delhi may have had to move. We were there. Literally, if Kashmir had been given its independence, all they had to do was move the border just a little bit. That was it. Physically, nobody had to What's move. a little bit? All the way up to, well, I would say all the way up to Jammu. Okay. Um, uh, You see, we even have natural uh, mountains that separate us from India. It's funny. I mean, if you physically look at it's Kashmir... It's as if Allah, crea- Allah created that my way. My God, it is the <laughs> best way to, 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 to present that case. Yeah. Allah had naturally created a separation of the Muslims from the Hindus <laughs> through that line of Kashmir, through the mountains of Kashmir. Unfortunately, it just... It didn't pan out that it way. It didn't pan out that way. Um, In fact, if I, if I may... Um, I cannot cite the reference right now, but I have this uh, uh, on good authority, and, I, and I'm sure that I read this as well, that at the time of partition, the British had said that leave the condition of the subcontinent in such a way that for the next hundred years, they will not be able to develop, nor will they be able to catch up this to the West. This is a very well-known uh, statement that was said by a British, um, subhanAllah. It wasn't Lord Mountbatten, was it? No, no it wasn't Lord Mountbatten, but I'm going to try find it, and when I find it, I'm going to put it at the bottom of the and screen. It's so up. important because yeah, it, yeah. It, it explains so much that has happened over the last 50-odd years. Now, you know when we talk about the occupation of Kashmir, you know, you said just earlier on, you said, look, we are a people who have dealt with occupation and oppression for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. So naturally that predates Islam, right? Um, however, it has become for many an Islamic issue. It has become for many an Islamic cause. Uh, revivalist scholars, uh, du'at, revivalist movements, people who are non-Kashmiri, They are involved and they talk about him, raise awareness point for the very reason that they believe it to be an Islamic um, cause. So I will posit to you, has India's policies towards the people of Kashmir been unique to Islam and Muslims? Or is it just that it happens to be that Muslims are the inhabitants of this region that they want to keep and occupy? Let me give an example. So, so with the Uyghurs, it's a very common argument that, oh, it doesn't matter that the Uyghurs are Muslims. If there was someone else, it would have been the same. It would have been the same. If it was Tibetan monks, it would have been the same. If it was Christians, it would have been the same. Um, but because it happens to be the Uyghurs, that is why they're experiencing what they're experiencing. Because they're just ba- wrong place, wrong time. Wrong place, wrong time. And it just happens to be that Muslims hold their religion so dearly and wear it on their sleeves that the, one of the ways... in which to attack them and to defeat them and to demoralize them is to attack their religion. It's not necessarily to do with the religion or the demographic, religious demographic of the people. The Sikhs inside Kashmir wear their religion on their sleeves as well. They're not oppressed in the same way that the Muslims are. They aren't subjugated the same way that Muslims, although as a community, they obviously suffer as well. 
But they haven't been targeted like that, apart from the obvious uh, fake encounters that have happened. The Christians, the Buddhists, uh, uh, they, they don't suffer the same way. The, the, this, this India, this notion of India, is not Gandhi's India. It was never Gandhi's India. This, you know, some kind of wearing a toga kind of, you know, bespectacled guy yeah. and, you know, very, very this, calm. This peace that, that's loving, not, that's yeah. not what it was. It was never that. Anybody that tells you that is living in La La Land. The truth is that the BJP, the, R, the, the, the RSS, the R, essentially the RSS, mm. that's where the BJP comes from, was formed during the times of Nazi Germany. They modeled themselves based on Nazi Germany. Uh, if you read their literature, forget the literature. Why go into history? Let's talk about current events. Let's talk about more recent events. Let's look at, let's look at the way that they present, the, when they have their community engagements, how they do their salutes. And I'm not going to do that because that is very, very, very offensive in this country. Of course. The, the hand raising. It's the same. It's, the same it's exactly the same. the same. Anybody that tells you otherwise or they say it's a coincidence, you tell me if I accidentally pretended to you know, do something similar, I would be arrested on the spot in this country. Absolutely. It is not an accident. It is not a coincidence. It is on purpose. It is by design that they believe in these principles. This are race they believe they always talk about the Aryan race they believe they are the Aryan race the superior race this 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 uh, Hindutva race and that is what they've always wanted so when we talk about in the context of Kashmir the ideology that we're looking or the 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 uh, effects of RSS and Hindutva and 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 radical Hindutva that we're seeing inside India the laboratory experiment was always Kashmir those trials have been exported to mainland India now so this isn't new this has been going on as long as uh, 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 Nazi Germany was around. So we're talking about people that have modeled themselves on Nazism, modeled themselves on fascism, something that everybody thought that they had crushed after the defeat of Nazi Germany. Mm. And you see sporadic bits and bobs in certain places, be it in, in Eastern Europe or even in the UK or anywhere else in the world. You see those, you know, tiny little minorities and they're clamped down on, yeah, mm. and maybe they rebrand themselves. These people aren't even rebranding. They're not rebranding. No. They openly praise Adolf Hitler. Open. I mean, I can't explain, I can't emphasize this enough that it is akin to a Muslim or for that matter, somebody, anybody, an Arab praising Abu Lahab. Of course. And then modeling themselves on that. These people are the Abu Lahabs. They want to eradicate the Muslim identity permanently. Okay, so, so just, just to stay on that point, I mean, brothers and sisters, you can go to Five Pillars and there's other websites, Dawam and many others, you can see that in RSS training, you know, the tens and thousands of children are being raised to basically justify genocide against Muslims. With swords and guns. With swords while, and guns. While just a couple of days ago, a Muslim was teaching martial arts. Yeah. Regular martial arts yeah, yeah. was arrested was for arrested. terrorism. Absolutely. Um, there's been loads of like kids drama plays of burning mosques, yeah. uh, the Kaaba burning, all kinds of like arms training. So we know the level of indoctrination is strong. And what's more concerning, and I think many non-Muslim viewers and listeners don't actually grasp this, is how big the constituency of support is Absolutely. for that ideology Absolutely. in India. Brothers and sisters, I think sometimes we forget, you know, when we talk about Modi, the BJP, and its ideological foundation, which is RSS, these people have a huge constituency of support in India, including within the Bollywood establishment. I'm talking, we're talking easily in the hundreds of millions, I would say. Because Modi won two general elections yep. quite confidently and mm -hmm. strongly. And of course, we're not saying that every single person who voted for him is an RSS member. But there will be a spectrum yes, of absolutely. those who tolerate what they believe to those who actually advocate belief and will, will, will implement what the And then there is. are those that believe he's too soft. 
Of course. Because people are now looking towards Yogi Adityanath. Who was an absolute nut job. Like, I mean, that's putting it lightly. I mean, we're talking about a genocidal maniac. Absolutely. Who's talking about, you know, digging up the graves. Of, listen, I mean, look, I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to the audience. Mm. This guy is telling the Hindus, the, the, the fundamentalist fascist Hindus, to dig up the graves of Muslim women and rape, rape them. them. Have so, some shame, have some ghira. And um, I guess what I want to ask you again then is, to go back to the initial question, if the birth of India was modelled around the RSS ideology or and, and it was kind of moulding and learning and, and, and it was fraternising fraternizing around the period of Nazi Germany, you're saying that then inevitably the Muslims will be the number one target to remove from India. Absolutely. Because from a demographic point of view, we would pose a threat, right? Um, hence why we see now Hollywood making a lot of revisionist movies, Panipat, um, you know, glorifying Akbar um, and the kind of usual stuff, right? A Hindu would say, why is that a problem? A Hindu would say to you and I, Delhi, Muzammil, why is that a problem? Because in your Muslim lands, surely you'd want the majority, the power and the authority to be with the majority of the Muslims. Surely you would want to implement your Sharia and you'd probably pursue those who oppose it publicly or proselytize to another way of life publicly whereas you guys do your dawah you do your maulanas you have your mullahs you have your masjids you 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 kill our cows and and you you, you distribute it and eat it in eid whilst we are number one exporters elsewhere what's the problem what yeah. is the problem with us wanting our own hindu rashtra no, nothing nothing okay. whatsoever Okay. Just don't eliminate the Muslims. Muslims aren't eliminating Hindus. How many Hindus live in the Middle East, in the Gulf states, that, send, that send billions of dollars every month back to India? And how many of those Hindus have been subjugated, oppressed, tortured, killed, maimed, buried from their graves and raped? How many of them have been arrested for practicing their own religion? How many of their homes have been destroyed or occupied? Not a single one. Name mm. me one. You can't. They can't. No. Even if they make it up, they'd have to think of it for a while and we'd be able to point out those mistakes. The reality is, is that fundamentalist Hindutva believes in Akhand Bharat, a pan-Hindu nation. When Again, I'm re-emphasizing that they believe the same thing as Nazi Germany. That if you are not of the Aryan race, you must be eliminated. They want to create another holocaust. They, they appreciated the holocaust. So it is not just about the Muslims right here. I mean, it's coming to me now. I don't know why I never thought about this before. But the, it is not just an issue for the Muslims. Frankly, the Jews should also be concerned. When they said that never again, the Holocaust should never happen again. It's about to happen. Just maybe not with you, but it's happening mm. with somebody else. So if you genuinely believe that the Holocaust shouldn't happen again, it's happening. Genocide is happening. Not going to happen. It's happening. We've seen it. We're seeing it every single day. It's just that nobody or nobody in the mainstream is reporting it, apart from people like Five Pillars mm. and a few other brothers and sisters that talk about this. On a historical point of view, would it not be correct that if uh, the, most, the various Muslim rulers and empires and sultanates that came to India, that if they were truly about forcibly converting Hindus to, to Muslim, then it would have been India would have been demographically Muslim majority, but it wasn't. Exactly. For, for, for the best part of a millennia, it wasn't. In fact, I would go so far as to say that a lot of the uh, Hindu shrines and their temples and things that they hold dear were maintained by those Muslim rulers. That 
although that there may have been random acts of violence by people that uh, may not necessarily represented the state, but the state itself at that time uh, tried, from what I've read, I could be wrong, they tried to maintain an, uh, a level of decorum or democracy or equality among the people that Maybe this is going too far to say, but lakum dinukum You follow your religion, we'll follow ours. Hundred percent, and I'm going to echo that, Muhammad, because even whilst trying to research moments of the Delhi Sultanate mm. or the or the or the, or the Mughals or the various other Muslim states and empires that ruled in various parts of India, I was finding it very hard to find examples examples <laughs> of where there was an outright policy of forced conversions. Or even like like in many cases, jizya wasn't even imposed on exactly. them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, um, honestly, I find it so hard to find instances in Islamic history in India where Muslim rulers, you know, forcibly carried out massacres and genocides for the sake of them refusing to become Muslim. Exactly. I couldn't find it. Exactly. Maybe yes. Look, there was were isn't there were yeah, there were instances here and there, but it wasn't a state policy that ran for years. Exactly. I couldn't find it. It doesn't exist. It, and, and that's that's an argument. So when, when some of these Hindus, they look towards the Muslim, they say, oh, but you people believe in this and you want to eliminate us. Well, give us an example. When has that ever, that, when has that ever happened? Leave the Middle East. When has it happened in your own homes over the last millennia? Mm. It never happened. So that threat doesn't exist to them. And an oppressor cannot oppress because there is a potential threat from a minority. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> that's not logic. It, it, I mean... What is that? That's a preemptive strike. Where have you heard that before? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's actually interesting enough. The guys before you were speaking about pre-crime. Yes. Yeah, like how how can you how can you pursue and let alone convict on pre-crime? Exactly. Like I mean, use, what, thought use, police, and exactly, intention thought, police. It doesn't work that way. So you know, how big, how big and mainstream is? the Hindutva ideology in India as we speak right now? Growing, growing every single day. If it wasn't that mainstream, they wouldn't be in power. Um, the other thing is that the opposite, there is, a, there's, there is a problem with the opposition as well. Congress. The Congress, or anybody for that matter, that often people will say the BJP is so bad that the opposition must be opposite because they're called the opposition, so they have to be opposite. That's not true. I will ask you, the three wars that India and Pakistan fought, mm -hmm. They're all under Congress. They were all under the Every single one was under, under Congress. the Congress. Every single one. And people seem to forget that. And this is so important that the BJP haven't launched a war against Pakistan so far. Mm -hmm. The Congress did. But does that mean the BJP is better than the Congress? Absolutely not. The Congress didn't commit genocide in Kashmir the same way that the BJP are doing. Or they seem to be a slightly softer Sanghis. Does that mean they're better than the, than the BJP? Absolutely not. not. I mean, it's a bit like saying that what do they say? That a leopard never changes its spots. The position that a person holds inside India or in Western superpowers, let's talk, for example, America, mm. irregardless of who the president of the United States is, the policy is always going to be the same. Absolutely. And it's the same thing in Kashmir, in India for that matter, that whoever is going to be the prime minister, whichever party is going to be, they will never concede that Kashmir should have its right to self-determination. They will never allow the success of the Muslims. They will never give parity to the minorities, even their own minorities in the Dalits, as mm. we talked about. So it's just two sides of, of the same coin. Brothers and sisters, the point that Muzammalba has just made, uh, for those of you wondering what it was, what we're basically saying is that whether it's Keir Starmer or, or, I don't know, Rishi Sunak, someone who's in power, it doesn't matter if it's Labour 
or Tories, there's certain non-negotiables when it comes to state policies. Foreign policies tend to be, that's why Corbyn was so considered quite radical. Exactly, right? exactly. He was, it was something outside of the norm of what's expected from uh, British establishment leaders, irrespective of parties. And that's called radicalism. Exactly. Similarly, with US administrations, whether it's um, the Republicans or the Democrats, there's certain non-negotiables. For example, their policy on Israel Absolutely. will always be the same. Absolutely. It, it's a non-negotiable. So you're saying that whether it's Congress or BJP, the position on Kashmir is a non-negotiable one. Absolutely. And they will never concede that it does not belong to them. Absolutely. And there is evidence of this year in, year out. We've seen in various different governments. Now, they'll tell you that during the era of Manmohan Singh, who was another prime minister, Congress prime minister mm. at the time, that there was Aman and Shanti. Mm. Rubbish. Just because they say there was aman and shanti, there was peace and development in Kashmir, that doesn't mean that, that, uh, that, that that's true. There was still resistance. Tell me a day that nobody is in Kashmir that nobody resisted. One day, everybody resists in one shape or form, the same way as the Palestinians. Just because that the world media uh, does not recognize or has not picked up on news that somebody has been killed or martyred or arrested inside Palestine, doesn't mean that nothing has happened. Of course. There's always something happening. So it's... Uh, in, in our opinion, and I'm sure that the Muslims inside India have also woken up to this, this new generation of Muslims, um, they've realized that the, the mistakes of their elders in the past, uh, you know, they can't go back to partition and, and critique them for that. Whatever happened, happened. Of course. But it is about the elders of the generation that have said that we, we need to live in this country, so therefore we need to, you know, bow our backs a little bit. And not rock the boat. And not rock the boat. I don't think that's, that's a valid argument. I, you know, if you want, what do they say? That uh, you get the leaders that you deserve. Deserve, absolutely. Right? So if you if you don't want to change your condition, Allah is not going to change it for you. Hundred percent. And not only that, you know, this whole kind of like don't rock the boat. I mean, let's let's let let's, let me give you another anecdotal example. When there's an act of terrorism that's committed by someone who identifies as a Muslim, mm. you'll find our faith leaders tripping off over themselves to come and condemn, right? And I've spoken to many of them. I said, where has condemnation got us in 20 years of war on terror? Exactly. If we, if we could see an improvement in our situation, in how our community is treated, perceived, seen, dealt with, then I can say, you know what? Condemning preemptively, it's got plus sides to it. It's got pros to it. And we we'll join you. And we will carry on doing it. But if for 20 years the situation is getting worse and you still are doing it, it makes no sense. So... No, I, you know, there's only so much you can say, don't rock the boat, until you realise that not rocking the boat has got us into the situation that we're in. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's a dire one. We're approaching August, mm -hmm. which would then be three years anniversary of the revocation of Article 35A and then Article 370. For many Muslims who didn't know about the occupation of Kashmir and the conflict that's taking place there, 2019 August would have been possibly the first time in some level of detail they would have heard about this situation. What is Article 35A and Article 370 and why was its revocation so significant? As a Kashmiri, I will tell you it means nothing to me. It was a toffee, it was, it was a band-aid, it was something that the Indians gave us to make sure that uh, uh, that they could subdue us, that you can have your own constitution, you can have your own parliament, you can have your own little state, but you're still kind of Indian. That was what 317 and 35A was. It gave a level of so-called protection, and I use this term very, very loosely, a level of protection for Kashmiris for their land, so that no foreigner outside of Kashmir could come and purchase the land. Um, 
that's it. So I understand that people became antagonized or they learned about Kashmir and, and that's great that people understood Kashmir from that context. But for Kashmiris, I mean, 35A and 370, before and after, tell me, were rapes still happening? Yes, they were. And forced disappearance still happening? Yes, they were. Children were being blinded? Yes, they were. Uh, uh, you know, people were being exiled? Yes, they were. Journalistic freedoms were being clamped on? Yes. So 370, 35A, whether it existed or not, the conditions of Kashmiris were still, still the same. So why did it receive so much attention that it did? Land grab. It's the, I mean, it's the same thing as what happened with Sheikh Jarrah, right? Mm. Um, uh, constitutional changes often create news for international media houses, particularly for foreign offices, because it's constitutions, which means that anything can change, which means uh, borders can change, wars can happen. Mm -hmm. You can, it just anything, it's, it's, it's basically a tinderbox. Um, and more importantly, it's the reaction that could have happened. So when India decided to do what they did, illegally, mind you, uh, against the United Nations resolutions, the perception in the West was, what is Pakistan's reaction going to be? What is the Muslim world's reaction going to be? More importantly, what's China's reaction going to be? And China showed how they're going to react. They decided to occupy a part of Ladakh. Of and incrementally, they are taking it inch by inch by inch. Now, the Indian news houses won't tell you, but the opposition, people like uh, Swani, what's his name? Something, something Swani, he's a long, long name. A bit of a mental case, but he has reports that he's published on, on Twitter and other social media platforms that China are incrementally taking more and more land from the uh, uh, undisputed area between India and China, let alone the Kashmir part. So there are consequences. Um, how impactful, how entrenched and how far it will go, we can only presume. A lot of it depends on you and me. Uh, the, the, the common people, uh, how long that we're going to keep an interest in this, how much we're going to lobby for this, uh, you know, how much we're going to keep this in the news, uh, who's going to create the pressure groups, where is this going to go? So a lot of the, so in fact, I'll even remind you that uh, when Keir Starmer came into power, the various Muslim organizations that represented other Muslim organizations held certain round tables with the Labour Party at the time. Um, and then the Indian lobby, which is a very strong lobby, an invisible lobby, yep. not unsimilar to, what are they called, APAC in yep. America? APAC in America. Not unsimilar to that. Uh, the invisible lobby pushed back to Keir Starmer, who had to not necessarily retract, but amend his statement about having relations with India. Absolutely. So there, there are consequences uh, in the greater scheme of things. But for the individual common Kashmiri, now I understand that you know we, you and me, we love talking about foreign policy. We love talking about the Muslim Ummah. We, we, we are really entrenched with the community and we want to understand and, and find roots of, for solutions mm -hmm. uh, on a grand scale. The problem is that what am I going to tell uh, a young girl who was 14 years old, Insha, who was blinded with pellets? What, how am I going to explain to her what Keir Starmer's policy is? What does she care? What does she care about Article 317 35A? Tufail Matu and Muhammad Farooq's father, uh, both these young boys that were killed by tear gas and, and bullets and other children that have been killed and martyred, what do their parents care about 317 35A? It makes no difference to them. The, the, the cousins that I have in jail or other people's family that are being constantly harassed, what difference does 35A and, 37, uh, 35A and 370 have?
or for that matter, uh, you know, th this this grand scheme of nuclear powers and and CPEC and One Belt One Road Initiative and NATO and and Ukraine and global warming and climate change and what what is how are you going to explain that to a mother that hasn't seen her son for thirty five years? and doesn't know whether he's dead or alive. What do you tell a half-widow, a woman that hasn't seen her husband for God knows how long, that whether she can get remarried or not? What do they care about these things? How does it matter to them? So when we talk about the RSS and all the, it is so important that we recognize it, but it is even more important to understand the, the impact that it has on the individuals, the children, the women, the old, the young, anybody. I'll give you examples, 30, 37, 35A and 370, what happened during that time? Media blackout, um, economic, all the economies were shut down, creating trillions of dollars of damage, infrastructure was damaged, healthcare was damaged, there was a, a Somebody narrated to me an ordeal of a young woman that was trying to go to the hospital to give birth to a child. The military refused to give her uh, passage because there was a curfew. She was clearly pregnant. And she gave birth to a stillborn baby on the side of the road. <laughs> Tell her about 317.35a. Tell her about Ukraine. Tell her about climate change and the 40 degrees that we're about to have. Uh, you know, there are so many different stories that, that exist inside Kashmir that... Tell our people about, was it your cousins um, who were kidnapped and then from the, from the uh, mosque speakers? You know, one story among many, he, he you know, I'm not that relevant. I mean, it, it wasn't just him. There were many, many young boys that were picked up uh, in the middle of the night, as young as four or five years old. Some were taken into the local masajids. The loudspeakers were turned on and they were tortured under loudspeaker to instill fear and terror among the local population, to make sure that nobody came out to protest. They picked up tens of thousands of people preemptively, 5th of August 2019, to make sure that these community leaders, these people that come onto the streets to protest, these people that pelt stones, that write articles, that tweet, that they wouldn't provide information. They shut down the internet, complete blackout, complete media ban. Nobody knew what was happening. For months upon end, we had no idea what was happening with our loved ones. Some guy texted me and he was crying and he said to me that, you know, finally, uh, you know, I saw my mum. I said, how, how in God's name did you see your mum? He said, there was a news report uh, on, on an Indian channel and I saw my mother, she's alive. A young man found out that his fiance had died four and a half months after she had died because there was no communication. And, his, and the family members had no idea how to tell him. So these are real life case stories. And this isn't happening from, this isn't something that happened in 1974 or 1983 or 1997. Now. This happened just not even, a, I mean, yeah, we're talking about 2019, but stuff is happening every single day. You know, just a few days ago, another young couple of uh, uh, resistance, people that were resisting against the Indian occupation were martyred. Again, young boys. Um, other people put in different cases, like, you know, a journalist, Fahad Shah, mm. uh, Asif Sultan, um, uh, so many others that, are, you know, I'm, I'm tripping over myself right now, so many others that are languishing in jail because they're apparently enemies of the state. They're instigating the people. L imagine the British government, the intelligence services, the police, all the institutions in the United Kingdom coming to pick you up because you're telling the truth, because you're reporting something that has actually happened. Not your opinion. <laughs> journalists inside Kashmir know better than to write their opinion. <laughs> Just doing their journalistic duties. Just reporting down the middle. That's it. And they get picked up. And they go to jail for an indefinite amount of time. 
Look, it's, uh, as you narrate and describe these, these stories, it's hard to listen to it. And anyone, who, any Muslim with Ghaida for, for his brothers and sisters will naturally be angered, right? But it is the channeling of this anger into something that's fruitful and meaningful for our brothers and sisters. I mean, I know we can't, I know it's not politically correct or even safe in certain environments to say that it is a normal feeling for Muslim boys and men to hear about the plight of their brothers and sisters irrespective of where they are and they want to literally physically go and help. You it, know, I'm so sorry to cut you up. Just, just a couple of days ago, you and I and the rest of the Muslim communities were remembering Shabinicha. Of course. That's all I'm going to say. That's it. If we, and at that time, it was justified. Yeah. And everybody was supporting it. 100%. Why not now? There used to be fundraisers for the jihad on university campuses in the UK because it was okay with the foreign policy of Britain at the time. Exactly. Um, there was a time where it was okay for people to go and fight in Libya to fight Gaddafi. There were time in the very early period, 2011 and 12, where Britain turned a blind eye to Muslims going and fighting Bashar. Yes. Until it then became problematic, right? So I guess what I'm trying to say to you is, whilst Article 35A and 370 was the starter point for many Muslims to realise, of course it's important for them to know that it probably had little to no actual effect to Kashmiris on the ground facing the occupation and oppression every day. But that said, given mm. that 2019 August did happen and there was international coverage around it, could we at least see that as a PR positive plus point in terms of getting the conversation started? Absolutely. Absolutely. It is for those that did not know about Kashmir or for those people that forgot about Kashmir or for those people that had something in their hearts for Kashmir but didn't really know what to do. This was the perfect opportunity for people to be reinvigorated, mm -hmm. reminded and find out exactly what is happening. It gives people an opportunity to act the same way they acted for the people of, the, of Bosnia, the same way they acted for the people of Palestine and continue to act for Palestine, for the Rohingya, for the Uyghurs, for the Afghans, for you know the, the, Syrians. the, the Syrians, for the anybody. You know, are we, are we not part of that Muslim Ummah, Dili? Yeah, of course we Do are. we not bleed? In the, way, the words of Shakespeare, do we not have two eyes, two ears, a nose and a mouth? Do we not have the same blood running in our veins as you? 100%. Are we not part of that Ummah? Of course. Um, Bringing it to a, a, a topic which we kind of touched upon previously about the difference between Congress and BJP, right? Um, and obviously, you know, mashallah, it is promising to see what I'm identifying as a new generation of Indian mm. Muslim activists and thinkers who seem to, you know, uh, whether they're from, uh, what's, the, what's the famous uh, university in Uttar Pradesh? JN, uh, Uttar Pradesh? Uh, Delhi. The JNU. Yeah, JNU. Uh, Aligarh, there's, 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 yeah. there's, 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 there's some hope. Yes. There seems to be some anti-establishment hope because after decades of trying to prove your Indianness, trying to prove your loyalty, trying to prove that I just want these basic X, Y, and Z ritualistic practice to be preserved, the rest of you guys can do what you exactly. want. We will live under you and cause no harm, right? That it's got them nowhere. In fact, it's caused more problems. And to hear Muslim, ulama, Mm. to condemn the Mujahideen of Kashmir and to talk about Kashmir as if it is a part of India and that the resistance is haram and it's rebellion and all this kind of Even madness. Even for their own Indian Muslims living inside India that are resisting yes, the CAA and RC, telling them that they are also wrong. wrong. So, given that, 
how can we how can we highlight that opposition to BJP isn't to become a congressy for those of us that live outside of india it's important to recognize who the legitimate representatives of these causes are um, the congress does not represent the muslim uh, muslim people it doesn't uh, Show me, show me who in the Congress is an advocate, staunch advocate. And I don't mean that something happens and they go to the scene and they cry a few tears and they walk away. I'm talking about day in, day out activists. People like Afrin Fatima, people like Sharjil uh, uh, Imam. Yes. Uh, um, um, uh, you know, so many others that I, again... I'm, but they're the two that me. come to mind. The, those Most are the ones that come to mind right now. So these are the legitimate representatives of it. Not their fathers, not their grandfathers, because those people have had their time, they've made those mistakes, and this generation are now picking up the slack uh, and correcting those measures. Their fathers and their grandfathers were living humble lives, perfectly fine, you know, uh, not specific, I'm not talking about specifically, but generally the Muslims, as you said, you know, they, they, they bent their back a little bit, you know, down, they bowed a little bit, said, okay, fine. These people, they don't want to take it. They know what their Muslim identity is. They want to make sure that it is, it, 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 that they are able to maintain it and uh, uh, pray and do what they need to do all within the Indian constitution. They believe in the Indian constitution as they should. They're Indians, that's fine. Kashmir is a completely different kettle of fish, completely. For the Indian Muslims, proving to be or needing to prove to be Indian meant being soft on their religion and uh, 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 closer to Hinduism. I mean, this is a reality yeah, of that they had to downplay their Islam and be soft towards Hinduism. They had to go to the pujas and they had to say, Jay Shri or whatever it is yeah. and, and do the, the yeah, whatever yeah. all those rituals that the Hindus have they had to do that whereas we know that that is not the case of Kashmir's it's, it's leave the, it is not within our we're not permitted to even emulate to copy even mm. as a joke mm. it's not for us mm. so the elders had to do it to survive but these people they don't want to survive they want to flourish they want their identity to flourish what is that identity? not the Indian identity the Muslim identity I heard from some sources and colleagues uh, who obviously for security reasons can't be mm. named they said um it is our kashmiri brothers and sisters that are actually the fire in our belly in our in our universities because it is actually the handful that actually have given us the taqat to uh, do what we do he goes for many years we've ignored them we've seen them as troublemakers um anti-nationalists anti-nationalists <laughs> many of us turned a blind eye to their oppression just so we don't get targeted because but truth be told and a few of them have said this that it is our kashmir brothers and sisters actually the fire in our belly alhamdulillah i mean look uh, 70 years too late but that's fine we can't hold their fathers their grandfathers and their great-grandfathers uh, to account we can hold this generation to account they now have the knowledge they have the ilm, they have the the the, the, the strength mm. and they are doing it we need to help them see it through to the end the same now we have not gotten our freedom mm. but we're still so we, we continue yeah we are and we're not stopping and we pray and we hope and we will assist in whatever shape and form for the indian muslims that they also continue their struggle for their rights uh be it under the indian constitution or if they want uh something separate we are with them but as long as they maintain their muslim identity and they recognize that this is a war on islam we are with them and we are with all the muslims um, a question I wanted to ask you was pertaining to the fact that India is, a, is the home of Dioband. It is the home of Nadwatul uh, Islam. Uh, it's the home of the, the Barelvi movement. It is the home of some of the biggest Sunni seminaries and movements 
in the world. Um, from your knowledge, if any, what has been the stance of the said groups and movements and tariqs to the Kashmiri issue? I will answer that with a question. And the question is, how many of the, the people that you mentioned, how many of them have suffered under the uh, various rules inside India? Or have they flourished? They've flourished. Their numbers have increased. Then I have no comment. <laughs> I mean, you, you can extrapolate from that what that means. Now, I can't question their, uh, their, their iman. Mm. I can't even question their character. What I can do is offer you and present to you facts that if they have flourished while others have suffered, what does that mean to you? Can I counter back to you, you and say, Muzammil Bai, is it not better for us to pray our salah, give our zakah, mm -hmm. preserve our religion, try to do some very soft dawah in whichever way we can, isn't that better than trying to advocate for our brothers and sisters, even if that was the intention, even if that was the thinking? I'm not saying it was. But one can present the argument that the preservation of the basic rituals of our religion is important, more important mm. than risking our lives for the cause of Kashmir. Mm. Tell that to the Palestinians. Tell that to the Kashmiris. Tell that to anybody that has suffered directly for 70 plus years. Just because they haven't, they've been blinded, they've worn rose-tinted glasses for so many years and they've been presented with uh, you know, benefits uh, uh, to stay within certain parameters, doesn't mean, you know, what do they say, that um, a frog, if, if put in hot water, is going to jump Damped, out. Of course. But a frog that is put in cold water and slowly uh, boiled, he boils to death and he doesn't realize it. That is exactly what is happening there. That they don't realize what is happening to, to the community, not to them. They know what's happening to them because they're benefiting from it. But the community at large, they don't recognize it because they think they're all, well, if they copy us, then they're going to be fine. But as you meant, you said something very important. If we do our zakat and we do our prayers and we do this, is, is that enough to be a Muslim? That is my only question. Is, is, is Islam praying? And doing zakat and, and, and fasting, not. is that it? Of course not. Of course th th not. That is the answer. So anybody that says this soft Islam, you know, maybe I'm not politically correct within the Muslim community and I doubt that you are either, <laughs> but I don't believe in this soft Islam stuff that, you know, just, you know, salah and... and, and we That's not our religion. That, that it, it wouldn't have reached our land if it was just that. Uh, exactly. This, this is not Islam. Islam is about standing up for your rights. 100%. Uh, what do they say? That you are, it is permissible for you to fight if somebody takes your haqq. Absolutely. And in Islam, there is a lot of my haqq that is being taken away 100%. from me. 100%. I say this to so many of our youth. I say, listen, brothers and sisters, when I go to university, go to ISOX, I say, listen, if Islam in reality, in its asal, if the, the Prophet ﷺ, the Sahaba, and our noble descendants and, uh, and, and forefathers, mm. if they followed the Islam which we're, we are told we should follow, it would not have reached Sindh. It would not reach. It would not reach Morocco. Mm -hmm. It would not reach Spain. It would not reach the Balkans. It would not reach Far East Asia. It wouldn't have reached any of those places. No way. It wouldn't have. It would have just stayed in the Arabian Peninsula. If even that. If even that. It would have just been Medina Makkah. <laughs> yeah. But it wasn't. Exactly. So. Do not change something that was unchanged for exactly, centuries. Exactly, exactly. Do not reinvent the wheel. That is where bid'ah comes into. Of course, 100%. Uh, and, and frankly, that would lead to a shirk. Absolutely. You are, do what they did, emulate that. You want to be the best Muslim? Everybody wants to be the best Muslim. Emulate that? Then emulate them. Don't create a new form of Islam for me. Uh, at least not for me. You want to do it for yourself? That's between you and your Lord. Don't impose that upon me. If you don't want me to impose it upon you, don't impose it on me either. So just staying on India and 
the Muslims of India, right? Uh, a very, very sizable minority, right? Um, you know, Hyderabad, mm-hmm. Gujarat, um, Assam, uh, there's many other states yeah, that have. Even in South India. Yeah, yeah that have, you know, have, have quite sizable communities. Um, what has your feeling been, not with the new wave, not with the new wave of Muslim activists that are coming, Alhamdulillah, that we've seen for the last three, four, five years. Um, what's your general feel been, or understanding been towards the sentiments of these people? I know it's very hard in the absence of opinion polls and data mm. and all that stuff, but generally from your limited observations and interactions, why is there a sense of, just let's put complicity aside, but passiveness and neutrality. Is it really the fear of not being seen Indian in, or not being seen as loyal or Indian enough. Is it really that? That apathy existed mostly for that reason. And you would, it's very difficult to understand that until you realize that this has been going on for three generations. That every generation is telling the next generation that if you, if you want to survive in this country, then you will have to do your Eid namaz, but you're also going to have to wear the tikka on, on, on Navratri or whatever. Mm. The, you have to do it. That's the only way to survive. Um, and because of that, the state itself realized that these people are willing to concede, they're willing to compromise, they're willing to emulate us to survive. Hence the policy continues. Hence the po- Not only has the policy continued, they move those borders, they move those yes. conditions, the parameters even more and more and more, constricting the Muslims even more and more and more. And eventually it, there is going to be an implosion that we've started to see that implosion um, and it's not just the Muslims now remember the farmers protests yes the Sikhs they the Sikhs. organized admirably fantastically <laughs> and even the Khalistan I mean the, the, the farmers protest is completely different to the Khalistan Sorry. movement yep. it was the Indian uh, deep state and the government the BJP and the RSS that tried to conflate the two which essentially meant that the farmers' protests or the people that were protesting with the farmers or the Sikhs that had nothing to do with Khalistan suddenly became, because they were Terrorist linked with Khalistanis, they became, and then they embraced it. They said, Tika, you want to make Khalistanis? We'll show you Khalistani. So, you know, when, when we talk about the war 9-11 and we say that the West created the terrorists mm. on pur- by doing the... Mm. It's exactly what India did. They created the Khalistan movement even more stronger than it, than it could have possibly been. Khalsa aid... Uh, um, the, the head of Khalsa Aid, uh, he was banned from Twitter as well and, and restricted in India. I mean, this, he's an Indian. They've never had problems with Sikhs like that, but why? Because th- it's not that they want just the elimination of Muslims. It is all minorities that don't conform to their version of Hinduism and Hindutva. Uh, and that form of Hinduism and Hindutva means the elimination of all minorities, beginning with the Muslims because they are... A, a, the majority minority. Majority minority. So get rid of them first, and then we'll get rid of the Sikhs. Break the Khalistan back. Get rid of the Dalits. And now you would think that maybe if people converted to Hinduism, that they would be safe. They will never trust even the biggest Muslim that wears a tikka, wears but prays namaz as well. But because he is a Muslim, he has a name that is Muhammad, or he has a name that is, or she has a name that is Fatima. They will never trust them. Sounds like the case of the Moriscos. I will give you an example, just clo- slightly closer to, to Kashmir, that uh, Farooq Abdullah, who was a chief minister, one of the, mm. you know, the, he's the son of Sheikh Abdullah, tra- the traitor yeah. uh, Sheikh Abdullah, and this is yeah. also Farooq. The most Indian person you can find, even he was arrested during 370, when they abrogated 370-35, he was even arrested. The biggest Indian, who at one time people were considering uh, to become the president of India. 
This guy was arrested. Mehbuba Mufti, who went into a joint coalition with the BJP. Dilawar, she went into a joint coalition. She was in bed with the BJP. They put her under house arrest as well. They will never trust No one stands a chance. No one. They are meticulous in their fascism and their ideology. They are not willing to compromise. And yet, we see our Muslim brothers and sisters. So, you know when, you know when we present these situations, right? We're, we're talking about Kashmir. Mm. We can literally give cases of Palestine, Iraq, Afghanistan, how people willingly engaged with the oppressors, the occupied, whether they were foreign invaders or indigenous mm. ones. And then engaging with them, going into bed with them, you found yourself in prison, exiled, killed. Yet we choose to comply, we choose to compromise. Why do we insist on this? Uh, this is just a general question I'm asking you now. I'm not even talking about the Kashmir yeah. issue. Why do we have amongst our myths in this Ummah, when it comes to matters of injustice, oppression and occupation, do we find willing culprits who don't learn from their policy of compliance? Survival of the fittest. I know this is very Darwinian here, but in occupation and oppression, and it's maybe not something that people that uh, people that live in privilege like us that live in the West that we would necessarily understand, but people that live in occupation and, and subjugation, there are two types of people: people that are willing to stand up and fight for their rights, come what may, and others that are willing to compromise to survive another day. Who is right and who is wrong is not up to me to decide. But then even within those people that are willing to compromise to survive another day, you have different uh, uh, levels mm. that suddenly become one with the oppressor. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so much so that you can't tell where one begins and the other ends. Um, lack of Iman. Um, fear. Fear. You see, that would be the lowest form of those people that want to uh, uh, concede, that, that you know, become collaborators because of fear. That you can understand to some level. You can disagree with it, but you can understand it. But then the worst form are those people that directly are collaborate, collaborators. So uh, um, people that facilitate uh, uh, states anywhere in the world against Muslims. You know, you may, a Muslim is pointing out to another Muslim and saying that, you know what, he's, he's a bit of a terrorist, mm -hmm. which is a bit like the, the, the Trojan horse that of we course, had. Of course, in Birmingham, yeah. In Birmingham, we've had, even in America, we know that the, the CIA, even uh, Scotland Yard and MI5 used to uh, uh, hire or uh, not hire, pay Muslims, uh, recruit Muslims to spy in the massages post 9-11. So th it's not limited to to just, I think now, I'm, now that we're talking you, about, you, it's you, not just you, conflict zones. Yeah. I think it's just generally when people uh, feel that they are, you know, they're, they're being crushed, that you will do anything to survive. Um, you would even sell, you know, the, the, the phrase that he'd sell his mother to the devil. To, of course so then it comes down to only one thing. How strong is your Iman? 100%. And, you know, people will say that, you know, he sold himself for a million dollars. Maybe you're not worth, maybe you won't sell yourself for a million, but you might think at a billion. Mm -hmm. If you're not a billion, maybe at a 10 billion. Everybody has a price. Everybody has a price. Unless you have Iman. Of course. Bring the podcast kind of to a close, mm. but I, and, I, and I kept this particular area for the ending, and that is Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, born and raised in Bedford, Luton down the road. Most of my Satis and, and my closest brothers and companions are from AJK. Um, the reason why I know about Kashmir is because of my 
Kashmiri friends and my Pakistani friends. The reason why I attended the protest from a very young age, whether it be in Bedford or Luton or in London, wherever it may be, was because of my Pakistani friends. And they would always, there would be no difference. And I, and I, and I, I, have, I have no friends from occupied Kashmir. They're all from AJK. I'm your friend. Of course you are. But you're, <laughs> remember, you're of course you are. Your mother, you're my brother. But I'm talking about from young growing up. I know what you mean. I, what you I mean. never had, there was no one from occupied Kashmir. But they would talk as if Kashmir and Pakistan are one and the other. It's synonymous. Mm-hmm. Meaning, yeah, we might have a flag that looks like it, but really we have no problem waving their flag. It's our flag and the cricket team is ours and we are Pakistan. And when I asked them, what about the other side? Some of whom had grandparents that came through partition or escaped war mm. and there goes we too also see that as part of Pakistan so what I will ask you is <clears throat> how strong is the sentiments on the grassroots level from your understanding historically speaking has it been amongst occupied Kashmiris to be a part of Pakistan most of people most of the people that are martyred inside Kashmir they have a green flag wrapped around their shroud or on their grave. That green represents Pakistan for us. White is, traditionally it's white that represents Islam. Green represents Pakistan. People that have been martyred, uh, uh, be it through armed resistance, or be it children, I, in my memory, I have never seen anybody have anything but green or white. Nothing. None of this red stuff, and people that, majority of these, these red, colors it's basically nationalism yep. nationalistic people that don't necessarily believe in the islamic principles that mm. you know are embedded in this resistance against india mm. the majority of people inside kashmir have a great affinity to pakistan a great love for pakistan i mean cricket if it's if it's pakistan versus anybody in the world they'll support pakistan if it's anybody in the world versus india they will support anybody in the world <laughs> Even Israel against <laughs> India, no problem. Well, that's a bit of a stretch to say, but that's the love that the people of Kashmir have for Pakistan for a multitude of reasons. Pakistan have been the greatest advocate for Kashmir. Um, they have sacrificed a lot and suffered a lot because of Kashmir. The FATF, this grayly stuff, uh, uh, um, uh, India committing you know, terrorism inside Balochistan, inside Pakistan, uh, the United... I mean, there's so much that is going on that Pakistan have had to suffer because of us. Um, but more importantly, because of that Muslim identity. We are not Pakistani because of one Imran Khan or one Nawaz Sharif or one uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Benazir Bhutto or, or Musharraf or Bajwa. We're not, that's not us. We don't affiliate to, to, to these things. We affiliate to the state of what it's supposed to represent. Not necessarily what it might be right now, but what the ideology of Alama Iqbal and Qaeda Muhammad And it was a country that was for the safety for the Muslims to practice their religion freely. And we recognize this way before even the Pakistanis understood this. And, they, and a lot of people don't even appreciate the freedoms that they have. But we recognize it. It is the affinity of what Pakistan was supposed to be and could be. That is our love for Pakistan. Now, in the sense of do people want to be part of Pakistan? Many people do. Some might not want to. But everybody is on the same principle, as long as they're not collaborators with the Indian state, that nobody wants to be with India. Nobody can be with a person that subjugates and oppresses you. Nobody can be with somebody that has raped your sister 
or, or killed your father or enforcibly disappeared your brother. It just doesn't, it can't work that way. Nobody is, is stupid enough to believe that. But the love for Pakistan is natural. It is instinctive. It is in our DNA. It is, to some extent, our belief because of religion, the religious context. Some people have that affinity because of the religion and some people have it because of the politics. But in all cases, people have that respect for Pakistan. Now, there are a select few and you come from a certain area where you have a lot of nationalists that don't necessarily appreciate the Azad Kashmir flag or the Pakistani flag. And those nationalists are secular. I'm saying this with authority. They are secular. What do I have to do with the seculars? If they believe in their secularism, you believe in your secularism. And if you don't want me to impose my Muslim identity and my, my, my war, the, the war that is happening on me because of my Muslim identity, you don't want me to affiliate with you, that's fine. But then don't force your secularism on me. You follow yours, I follow mine. How, how successful have the secular elements of the opposition or resistance been? Is there a secular resistance? And by secular, I mean we do not want to be... Not inside, not, at least not inside Indian occupied Kashmir. Okay. Now, people may... Um, certainly, one particular leader inside Indian occupied Kashmir um, uh, who advocated for independent Kashmir. Yeah. A lot of people misappropriate him. A lot of people from his party, outside of Kashmir, misappropriate him. And they claim the whole secularism and independent Kashmir and anti-Pakistan narrative. That leader is a very, 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 very close brother of mine. I've spent time in jail with him. I know him a lot closer than these people do. They probably don't, have never even spoken to him. But over the years, you know what they say, Chinese whispers, of right? Course. So it, it all just evolves into some So what was some his nonsense. actual position then? His position was he wanted an independent Kashmir. But he recognized that Pakistan is our only advocate. The guy even got married inside Pakistan. He regularly used to travel to Pakistan. He has friends in Pakistan. I have never, in public nor in private, ever heard him ever say a single word negative towards Pakistan. Yet these people use him as some kind of poster child for anti-Pakistan propaganda, which is misappropriation. Mm -hmm. To the extent that I might be even be able to tell you this, I mean, this, I shouldn't have a problem because... When I narrated these stories to him, that these people that claim to be part of your group and claim that you're their leader are saying this, 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 and this, he literally held, I'm so sorry, he held his hands, his, his fingers to his Allah ears Allah. and said, Toba, mm. he said, tell them that this is not, they do not represent me. I mean, I told him that, look, I can't tell them, I'm not part of your party. And mm. What authority do I have to tell them this? Mm -hmm. But he does not appreciate nor agree with what these people are saying. And they may claim that that is what his ideology is, but that isn't it. So... And it is a minority. They, now, they make a lot of noise, but empty, a lot of empty vessels make a lot of noise. Conversations that have taken place throughout the decades about the future of Kashmir in terms of its uh, autonomy, mm. in terms of how liberation would look like, um, how, much, how much of those conversations have involved Pakistan? Meaning as a material supporter, as potentially being part of that state, if that's what the people want. Uh, has it always been in the conversation? Always. Always. There is always... Look, we have rep legitimate representation inside Indian Occupied Kashmir called the All Parties Hurriyat Conference. Their representatives are in Pakistan. Those that had to migrate or had were fled or for whatever reason they had to go to Pakistan, they represent that leadership. This All Parties Hurriyat Conference representation that is in Pakistan is in constant communication with Pakistan authorities. And they're always talking about how, you know, uh, international community needs to be 
sensitized towards Kashmir, how lobbying needs to happen. Uh, they're regularly working together uh, inside the United Nations. Uh, um, even their own uh, uh, um, think tanks and organizations, they, they involve Kashmiris. And Kashmiris, of course, involve Pakistanis, not just in the overt, but even in the covert discussions of how as you mentioned, what liberation should look like, what are the strategies, what are the tactics, who do we need to approach, how do we get things done, what do we need to launch, different reports that need to be published. Uh, look, the United Nations Human Rights uh, Commissioner, uh, a couple of years ago, he published that report on Kashmir. It was a hundred and something page dossier. It didn't happen in a vacuum, right? These things don't happen in a vacuum. A lot of the times people say, oh, oh, this is amazing, look what happened. You know, there is no profit in our day right now that is going to perform a miracle. Of course. Right, it, something happens in a nothing happens in a vacuum. There's always somebody doing something, and the good thing is that such people do not believe in taking credit. They believe in doing the work for the sake of doing the work, for the sake of sawab, for the sake of the ummah. So a lot of work happens that we aren't necessarily you know privy to, but I can tell you with authority that there is a lot of communication between you know Pakistanis and Kashmiris to talk and to discuss and strategize about the Kashmir liberation movement. When we look at Occupation, right? Whether it's Palestine or Kashmir or Afghanistan or mm -hmm. Iraq or any land which has been unjustly occupied by a foreign invader, where Muslims are being oppressed for being Muslim, resistance is something that's just pass and parcel, right? In fact, it becomes fardal ain for the individual to protect his family, his property, his religion, his land, and his honor. Um, and there's even international laws yes. to yes. to protect this, and and do tell us what the what, what the international because I know you cite it when you have to talk <laughs> about resistance. I mean, it's the it, PC way of just justifying resistance. Justify. Yes, uh, not even justify to to ratify. I mean, we, it's not me or or any other resistance leader in history that has mentioned. It is the United Nations Security Council, not a Human Rights Council, Security Council that talks about that people have the right to defend themselves, their honor, their land, their family. Um, as the, you know, it, I, would, I would go so far as to say that they probably copied it from the texts of Islam. Because it was pretty verbatimish. Exactly. Wasn't it? Yeah. A lot of it is, and it's funny, I mean, now I'm probably going off track a little bit, but a lot of these constitutions and the human rights uh, articles and, and procedures, a lot of it sounds very Islamic. Yeah, right? yeah, a lot of it is rooted in a lot of Islamic Creeping laws. Sharia, right? Yeah, yeah, of course it is. <laughs> Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, social contract theory was a lot of the works of, of Ghazali and, 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 and Juwaini and exactly. others. So, exactly. So we know, I mean, they don't, may not want to admit it, but, but, but that's it where is the root is. And yeah. maybe they'll say, oh, but it's common sense. Well, then follow Islam. <laughs> 100%. The rest of it must be common sense <laughs> as well. So considering that armed resistance, right, which whether we are comfortable talking about it or not, I'm talking about those who talk about conflict mm -hmm. zones and occupied Muslim lands, um, whether you see it as resistance or jihad fi sabilillah, whatever it may be, the point of the matter is that it has to happen. How do you explain to the Muslims of Gaza or Kashmir or any occupied land that you should just leave your door open and make your women available to be dishonored and for you to be blinded, uh, maimed, killed? with impunity i have no right to give a fatwa but if i did if i did i would say that anybody that rejects people that are oppressed from their right to resist is 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 going towards kufr because it is ordained on us to defend ourselves 100 percent. 
We cannot leave our doors open. In fact, what is it? The, 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 what is that? Uh, you protect your homes. The story about the, the tying the ca- the first tie mm. your camel, then have the walk. Yeah, absolutely. Right? So you must have the, your door shut and the lock put, and you put a security alarm, and then you have the. You cannot leave. It is not. Um, these are not the times of those miracles that happen in the times of, of the prophets. Mm. The miracle that we have is with us, it is the Qur'an and Sunnah, and we have to apply that. You apply that, the miracle will come. This taboo, this for some reason, people find it a taboo to talk about armed resistance and jihad. I mean, fine, there is a context, and fine, people may have misunderstanding about it. I this. have a discomfort with with Kashmiri Muslims, occupied Kashmiri Muslims, a few that I've spoken to, they refer to the Mujahideen as militants. Yeah, uh, uh, it's a language, and, and I've told him. Uh, I've, I've told him, I, I said, "Do you understand the militant has a specific connotation? Exactly, it has the connotation of a, of, of basically a terrorist. That, that's that's the, but, Se- but the separatist, which is another thing. Yeah. Language, you're so look coming from a journalist. I'm so happy that you picked up on this, because language is so important. So important." Right, pivotal. So we may be talking about armed resistance, but we're also talking about jihad. Mm. But jihad in the context of the United Nations Security Council resolutions, yeah, right? Absolutely. We're not talking about some kind of what what the the common Westerner. No, of course, it's according to our texts, not your interpretation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number 100%. one, number two is that when you say militant or you say security forces, number one, the Indian so-called security forces are not security forces; they're occupational forces, and the militants are of course the mujahideen or the armed resistance. The problem is, is that when Media, Indian media is shoved down your throat 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That language becomes normalized. It, that's the problem. The normalization of Indian language, Indian narratives, Indian ideology, you become, not only do the oppressed become desensitized, but imagine the rest of the world. Of course, they're never going to understand. When we can't even use the correct terminology, what is the West going to understand? So true. So there's, there's, a, there's a colleague, uh, a brother from Srinagar, and I was speaking to him, and um, lovely brother, and He's, he, he, I noticed he's mentioning militants and he submitted a piece where he actually wrote militants, uh, a language which we obviously have five people, we reject that kind of language. So I went back to him and I said, look, I said, the militants that you refer to, I goes, what they did, do you believe it was a noble act? Because of course, it's okay. Was it wrong? Of course not. It was, I'm not, but, but why do you refer militant? Why, mm. why do you use the language of militancy? And they couldn't answer it. Mm. You were stuck. And I said, like, do you understand that militant has a specific connotation of someone who is oppressive, unjust, a, rel- a religious zealot, ultimately a terrorist. Exactly. Right? I said, so whilst you didn't mean it, be mindful of this language and tell others not to use this language. Absolutely. There's so many other things you can use to describe Absolutely. those who have died in the, in, in the path of resistance, other than militants. Absolutely. So, Lang- yeah. Language is key. Language, language is so, so key. important for us. How much of the resistance is Islamic? Do we have secular resistance? Do we have nationalist resistance? Do we have, like for example, if we take uh, Palestine and Syria, Palestine because an older conflict, and, and you know we had Fatah, we had uh, Yasser Arafat, was a socialist, was an Arab nationalist, right? Uh, wasn't much overt. Uh, Islamic sentiments or principles in his worldview in terms of the future of Palestine. Uh, when Syria kicked off, you had Islamic sentiments, um, uh, elements, you had secular elements, mm. you had pro-democratic uh, elements. Yeah, yeah. What's, the, what's the setup like in terms of Kashmir resistance from your knowledge? Well, at the moment, um, I would put to you 
that anybody that has been martyred in the in the you know resisting Indian occupation has been doing it because of the Muslim identity. They've been doing it under the garb of Muslimness. Um, I, I can't see anybody unless you can tell me which secular person has been martyred in the last twenty years uh, fighting the resistance. It has always been from particular groups with a particular ideology with particular language. Uh, you know, it's just that group, the people that believe that this is an Islamic. And then those people that when they're martyred, people like Burhan Wani, mm-hmm. Manan Wani, mm-hmm. Riyaz Neku, yep. Junaid yep. Sehrai, all of these people, if you see the number of people that come to their funerals, huge. Manan Wani was massive. Mind-boggling. Um, so, I mean, which secular person inside Kashmir is resisting the Indian oppression with by armed resistance and how many people are going to their funeral? So in reality, it is, um, whether they accept, whether the people, the people in Indian-occupied Kashmir... Look, let me put it to you in a different way. I cannot, nor can anybody else for that matter, tell the people of Indian-occupied Kashmir what your resistance should look like and how it should be. Our job is to represent it justly not impose upon them. A lot of people will impose their own ideology and say that Kashmir's resistance is this, but it doesn't exist on the ground, so why are you saying it is this when it is not? We need to represent truthfully. In the old days, there have been maybe, on balance, some that was towards uh, nationalism and some that was towards Islam uh, and Pakistan. That phased out. And the only thing that remained was the Islamic. In Kashmir, most of the oppression happens in terms of institutional, when it comes to the institutions. Jamaat Islami, banned. Mm. Uh, some other uh, Islamic institutes, uh, not just uh, religious, but also the, the schools that are run by Muslims, that has also been banned. Tehrik Hurriyat, banned. Anything that had any link to Islam was banned, including the JKLF, which is independent. I don't want to say secular. A lot of people will tell you it's secular. Go to Jammu Yaz- Kashmir Liberation Front. Jammu Kashmir. Go if you. <laughs> none of these people know Yasin Malik, who is the mm-hmm. uh, head of the. I know him very personally, mm-hmm. very intimately. He's not a secular. No way he can be secular. The guy shouted at me for not praying on. T- I was in. I was in. I was traveling, so I do Jama Bayan Salat. Yeah, so I can. Yeah. He shouted at me for this. He said, "Ah, what kind of Muslim are you?" He must be a staunch Hanafi. They well, you know, <laughs> and these people. Are, uh, that's what I meant when I said misrepresentation of a man. That it just doesn't. Anyway, so. People that believe that this is a secular movement or it is a nationalistic movement, it may be for them. Whoever says it, it may be for them. But inside Kashmir, our women and our sisters and brothers and fathers, when they make dua in Ramadan and you see that they talk about the Muslim identity, say, protect our Muslims, the Muslims in Palestine, the Muslims in Iraq, the Muslims in Afghanistan, the Muslims all over the world. That's the du'as that they make. They don't say for our uh, nationalist Kashmir movement, for, our, for the nationalist Uyghur movement, for the nationalist Palestinian movement. They talk about the Muslims. And <laughs> tell me anybody that is secular, that goes to the masjid on Juma and says, Ameen, when the Imam says, Fi kulli makan. Absolutely. Everyone says it. They, uh, sec- then a secular shouldn't say that because mm-hmm. he shouldn't even yeah, be shouldn't in the mosque in the first place. Of course not. So, Nationalism, secularism, these are, it's, I won't say that it's complex, but it's misappropriated, misrepresented. And many times, Muslim, Muslim, I've noticed that 
particular types of sec- nationalism, I wouldn't say secular, mm. particular types of nationalism is infused with Islam. Yes. Doesn't make it right. Yes, yes, exactly. It doesn't make it right because because I've always maintained the position that Pakistan's nationalism is very much embedded with a concept of Islam, right? Compared to, let's say, Turkish whether, it, whether it's successful or not or is not, a different argument. Yeah, yeah. But, and whether it's right or wrong is another argument. But the point is their nationalism to many Pakistanis is synonymous to Islam. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, yeah, so you're right. Secularism is different. The nationalism, I think, yeah, maybe I'll retract a little bit and say that the nationalistic movement in Kashmir, even then, that nationalism is not one for secular nationalism. Yes, because secular nationalism is Islam has will have zero say yeah. in how a future state would look, how the liberation would look, how the resistance would look, how the identity of this country would look, how the constitution would look. That is obviously... That's that type of secularism. But I've seen certain types of nationalism, mainly with Pakistanis, actually. That when I engage with them, I speak with them, it's actually, they, they see it as one and the both. Mm. Doesn't make it okay all the time, exactly. but I understand where it's come from. Exactly. Um, last question mm-hmm. to close today's podcast. What is it that Kashmiris want from their brothers and sisters around the world? What, what is it in terms of meaningful, tangible actions what is it that you want? The least that a Muslim could... What do they say? That uh, when you see evil, you must act against it. And if you can't act against it, at least speak against it. If you can't speak against it, the lowest form of Iman is hating hate it, it in your you. heart. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, the Muslims around the world have more Iman than just hating it in their heart. Mm. They can at least speak against it. I'm not asking anybody to act against it. It has always been an indigenous movement inside Kashmir and it will remain an indigenous movement. But at least speak about it. Represent Kashmir in the best of, to, your, to the best of your abilities. The best way that I can give the advice to Muslims, that, you know, what do Kashmiris want? It is the same what the Palestinians, what you do for the Palestinians. Not, let's not ask what the Palestinians want. Let's say what you do for the Palestinians, what you do for the Rohingya, what you do for the, for the Afghans, what you do for the people of Syria, for the people of Yemen. Do for us. That is what we expect. When we see everybody do it for all the other Muslims, we ask you, are we not part of that ummah? Do we not bleed the same way that they do and that you do? It is as simple as that. Intangible things, it is writing to your MPs, it is lobbying the right people, it is getting the information from the correct sources, using the correct language, following five pillars, following Dilawar, making sure that you have the, uh, the, the correct narrative in play, that you don't fall to the, to the Indian propaganda and, and the same way that people don't watch the BBC and ITV and Channel 4 and Sky News and Fox News to get their information about Palestine, the same way please don't watch Indian news channels and listen to Indian uh, uh, commentators about Kashmir. Listen to the Kashmiris. You know, what do they say that it's something that you often do that just because you have the mic doesn't mean you have to speak for me. Sharing the mic with me is enough. Absolutely. And this is the most important thing. If you have platforms, share your platforms in your universities, in your masajids, wherever it may be. Um, One of the most important things that I have found is literature. We don't have for every one book that is written on. I'm exaggerating, but for every one book that has been written on Kashmir, there are probably 1,000 books written on Palestine. We don't have enough information and literature. We need to consolidate information and literature and use that as a lobbying tool around the world. Go to the, uh, to, to the high commissions, to the think tanks, to the foreign offices, to grassroots organizations. There are so many people around us that can do something, want to do something, but don't, don't have the, it's not the ability, but don't have the resources to do it. 
we need people, we need volunteers, we need people to commit their time. Now we can't, we don't have billions and millions of dollars to supply uh, people. We do this visa be love, we mm. do this with, in our free time whenever we can. And we ask you to do the same. People, you know, I remember in, in our day, I don't know if it's still happening, when we used to go to university, you'd have that Islamic uh, week, the, the fundra- awareness week, awareness where the people do fundraising mm-hmm. for different charities. If you could spend a week doing that, I'm sure you can spend one hour of your day or one hour of your week doing something for Kashmir. Anything for Kashmir, something tangible. Get in touch with a Kashmiri, learn something about Kashmir. At least share the knowledge. If you can't do it, at least the sharing of knowledge, you don't know where you're going to plant that seed. I don't believe that I can, there is no way that I believe that I can liberate Kashmir. No way. I don't think any of my generation could. But what I do believe is somebody in the next generation might. And the least that we can do is plant that seed uh, and be the shoulders that they can stand on. That is what we can do. So be those shoulders that others can stand on. Give the platforms to those people that can do something. Support different institutions that are working for the Kashmir cause. And that doesn't necessarily mean Muslim Ayyub Thakur. There are many other people much more competent, much more knowledgeable than I am. And it's not just about Kashmiri organizations. It is even about institutions live in the United Kingdom, Kingdom that represent and reflect and report about Kashmir, like Five Pillars do. And, not, and I'm not saying this just, be, just because you're here. It makes no difference to me. Uh, I don't owe you anything. You don't owe me anything. But it is the truth. Very rarely I have seen other institutions, other organizations, and other uh, social media, not users, uh, vlo- bloggers, vloggers, platforms, people that use the, that talk about Kashmir without naming names, but we lobby them. It's not just me. Many people lobby them, talk about Kashmir, talk about, but they end up talking about Kashmir in the context of the Muslims of India. But these are two separate issues. So the knowledge isn't there. So we need to reach out. And I, and I would say, as a task for anybody that's watching this, reach out to other uh, YouTubers, vloggers, tweeters, Facebookers, uh, that's just social media. Then you have the world of the mainstream media. Then you have the world of think tanks and foreign policies, uh, policy makers. There is an entire world out there. If you sit down and think for five minutes, and if you don't want to think, I'll give you that list. Target one person. One person and make an effort on that. Usually, we, what do we do? We, we throw spaghetti in the wall and we think whatever sticks, sticks. Mm. Let's focus on one person, all of us together, and make sure we can get them on board. You know, even celebrities, what's wrong? Didn't... You remember when Sudan, when, when they broke up South Sudan and North Sudan? Mm-hmm. Who were the celebrities? It was, uh, what's his name, Matt Damon? Yes, that's a huge Hollywood name. What's that names. guy's name, George Clooney? Yes. All of those celebrities, they broke up, I mean, obviously with the help of the State Department, mm-hmm. but why can't we? Why can't you and I? Why can't we reach out to some of the uh, Islamic scholars that people have become fanboys and fangirls of? You know exactly what I'm implying. <laughs> the ones that tell Kashmiris that may God say protect us from the from the Kashmiris. Um, why, why, why don't you, know, you remember what I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. So, why why can't we get to these people? Uh, leave leave the the religious scholars for a moment. Let's talk about just regular people that, that are making their TikToks and their and their and their YouTubes and the people that create Islamic content. People that have a thousand, ten thousand, a million views, speak about Kashmir just once. Fine, you might not get that many views, but at least you can face your Lord in Akhira and, and say that I, I did, did my something. part. I did my part. Muslim, Jazakallah khair. I pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he not just relieves the occupation and depression of the Muslims of Kashmir, but he, he gives them victory Ameen. and liberation. Ameen. And to all of us. To, to us all. And specifically that I pray that our sons and our daughters can give to this cause like they've given to other causes like Palestinian others. I mean, I mean, and because you have the Palestinian shirt, I will end with a small anecdote. Uh, 
several years ago, uh, yet again Israel had uh, uh, bombed Palestine. Protests erupted all over the world. Only one person in the entire world during those protests had been martyred protesting for Palestine. Mm. It was a Kashmiri. SubhanAllah. We bleed for the Ummah. And we ask the Ummah to at least not bleed for us, make dua for us and make some effort for us too. Brothers and sisters, I hope you thoroughly enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, a lot of it was difficult information uh, and realities to absorb and take in. But inshallah, we narrate and go over these things to empower us to, as a source of energy for us to act and not to be disempowered. And we pray to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that he gives victory and liberation of the Muslims of Kashmir, Amin, and elsewhere. Brothers and sisters, if you enjoyed this podcast, subscribe to our channel. You'll find us on all the major audio platforms. Of course, if you're watching via YouTube, click subscribe, like this video, share this video, leave a comment. Until next time, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Blood Brothers Podcast, a five-headed production.